So that was supposed to be up while we had the uh, gospel reading, but never mind. So this morning I thought we'd do something a little bit different, and I thought we would start the sermon with a quiz. So, this is just to see what you do and don't know, and maybe for you to learn something. So these first questions are pretty straightforward, should be able to get these, and they'll just warm us up for what's ahead, okay? So the first question, what language does Jesus speak? If you know the answer, just shout it out. Aramaic. Right. So that's what Jesus spoke. So what language was the Old Testament written in? Hebrew? Hebrew. Hebrew is the right answer. There's, there were Greek translations around by the time of Jesus, and it's most likely that the Gospel writers and Paul were operating off Greek translations. Uh, and there are a few books that are in the Catholic and Orthodox Bible that were written in Greek, and they're not in the Protestant Bible because they were written in Greek. And the Protestants said, if it wasn't in Hebrew, it wasn't kosher. So I'm not going to chop that out. And it's kind of in ours. You can kind of choose. So it is in the le- lectionary. It's called the Apocrypha. Okay. So what language was the New Testament written in? I've given you a few clues there, so you should be able to get that one. Greek. Greek is the right answer. Why Greek? Why not Aramaic? Because Alexander the Great conquered the East, and his generals ruled it until some pesky Romans came along. And so the language of the East was Greek. It is what, in the end, split the Roman Empire. The West spoke Latin, the East spoke Greek. So Greek was the universal language, and that's why the New Testament is written in Greek. So, when we hear Jesus said, that's been translated from Aramaic into Greek, and then Greek into English. Which sounds all very straightforward, except... Words never translate exactly, and the grammar never works exactly the same. So you're always making compromises. The grammar not being the same, I realised that on Friday night, because I was at a marae trying to say some simple sentences in Māori, and I was thinking them in English and then trying to work out how to say it in Māori. What a disaster. At some point I'm going to have to work out how to think it in Māori and I'll be okay. It's going to take me a while though. Alright, so, gets a bit more difficult now. Who wrote the oldest book in the New Testament? <coughs> Got a Paul here. John. Any others? Undecided. Okay, I'm going to go with Paul. So, Paul wrote his letters from late 40s, 50s. 60s, maybe, maybe, no, Revelation's much later. No one puts that early. And, well, the Gospels, most people would put later as well. They would put after an event we're going to talk about. So the first letters, the first things are Paul's letters, and sliding of there are James and 1 and 2 Peter. So... That's the early stuff, not the Gospels. So, 
Who wrote the oldest gospel? Mark? Any other takers? Yeah. Go with Mark in community. That sounds fair. There are a couple of people around like John A.T. Robinson that think it's John, but Mark in community. And most people would say they were written after an event we're coming to. And then the last question is pretty easy. Who wrote, what is the second volume of the Gospel according to Luke? Acts. Pretty straightforward, isn't it? They're two-volume work, and they work side by side. They're the same story that kind of continues on through. They really should be side by side in the Bible, but they got separated. John somehow got plonked in the middle. Who knows why? So, these questions, they are the warm-ups. These questions, I've already answered one of them, so they're, well, two of them actually. So those last three questions, I want you to talk to your neighbours, or you can sit in stony silence if you want and think about it. For those that like to sit in silence, that's good. And those who like to talk to their neighbours, talk about how we might describe when the new, how the New Testament is organised, what are the synoptic gospels, and what happened in 70 CE. So, have a chat. Wise among you have got your Bibles open trying to work out how the New Testament is organised. All right. There's some yummy morning tea, and we're not going to get there until the sermon's over, so let's move this along. So, how might we organise the New Testament? What would we start off with? Right, what would we call all those books? Generally have a, a term. Uh, the first lot of books are the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. 
So those are the first four books. Okay, so, and they're all clumped together. When they put together the Bible together, they don't put it like the story or anything like that. They just put types of books together. So the four Gospels clump them all together there at the front. Clearly that says they're pretty important. And then after the Gospels, they put Acts. Because that kind of fits with the Gospels. It's the story of how... It's the kind of story of Paul, really. It's a bit of propaganda, but there you go. Uh, and then, what's next? After what Max is... Your answer. Your answer was Paul's letters. Paul's letters. So then we have a whole great chunk of Paul's letters. So Romans, we've been listening to for ages. 1 and 2 Corinthians. And then A-E-I-O. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. If you want to know which order they go in, A-E-I-O. And then some others that I don't have a cunning little thing to remind me what order they're in, so I have to look them up. But they're not very long, so it doesn't take long to find them. And then we have some other letters. Who wrote those? Uh, That's Paul letters to Timothy, so he didn't write it. Paul wrote, was thought to have written it, or they fight about that. So who, who wrote some of the other letters? Peter, James, and John. I left John out at 8 o'clock, that's a bit bad, isn't it? And then we finish up with the last book, which is Revelation. So there they are. The Gospels, the Book of Acts, the Pauline Epistles, the other Epistles, the Book of Revelation. So that's, that's how the New Testament is organised. So when you're hunting around, you've got to remember that. Okay, now what are the Synoptic Gospels? What on earth are those? Sounds a bit weird. Can you? The synoptics. Which ones are they? Matthew, Mark and Luke. And what's the common denominator with those three Gospels? What holds them together? Not you. Mark. Mark holds them together. Matthew and Luke use Mark. And then he, they have some other sources. And one of them is Q. I don't know why it's called Q. There's some German word that starts with Q. So there's Q and they clearly Matthew and Luke have a, have a common source apart from Mark. But then they have their own sources. And one of the really interesting things that Bible scholars like to do is to explore how Matthew and Luke use Mark and use Q and change it to suit what they are trying to say in their Gospels. And they do change the stories. They change the order of the stories. They change the setting of the stories. They even change the wording of the stories. So, but the thing that holds them together is Mark. They basically use the storyline of Mark. So Mark's the first. And then there's John. And John is really different. He has a different storyline. He has different stories. He's just 
different. There's very little apart from it's about Jesus. That's about the only thing that's the same between John and the other three Gospels. So when we're reading the Gospels, we kind of have to keep that in mind. And one of the interesting things is when we're reading Matthew, Mark and Luke is to look at how those stories are used. And the last question is, what happened in 70 CE? The destruction of Jerusalem. Now this is huge, as you can imagine. Because the early church was Jewish. They were a bunch of Jews who met in the temple, who adhered to the temple rites and obeyed the Mosaic law. When James, the leader of the church in Jerusalem, and therefore the head of the church, was killed by the high priest, he wasn't killed because he was disobeying the law. He was killed because he was advocating for the poor. The early church were a thorn in the flesh of the leaders because they kept saying what you're doing to the poor is wrong. And the high priest had had enough and got him killed. And the devout Jews of Jerusalem were outraged and rioted because this devout Jew, James the Just, had been killed. So the early church was Jewish. And then along came Paul. And he said... You don't have to be a Jew to be a Christian. And this incredible theological debate begins, which we've been listening to for the last number of weeks in Romans. That's what that's all about. This contest about the whole identity of what it means to be a Christian. And that kind of comes to a head with the destruction of Jerusalem because the church was based... In Jerusalem. And suddenly, it's not. Jerusalem's gone. Like, it's gone. The city Jerusalem no longer exists. The temple is gone. Jews are no longer allowed to live there. They're banished. And so, what that means for the leadership of the church and the, and the church's identity is cataclysmic. And the kind of balance of power shifts to the Gentile part of the church at that point. So, there's all this wrestling going on, and all of that is at play when we read the Gospels, Paul, and all those letters. These are the issues. This is the tension. So, back to this morning's Gospel reading. If we... Just kind of read that reading. I don't know how Jesus comes across to you, but to me, he comes across as just a rude Jew, really, doesn't he? He's pretty rude to that woman. And he seems like somebody trapped in his time and his culture. And, well, I think that's a fair enough description. We have this kind of idea that Jesus is fully human and fully divine, but the fully divine was the most important bit, so Jesus was a kind of all-knowing, all-loving, and he knew everything about himself from the beginning. And I just think that kind of undoes the fully human bit. I actually think Jesus had to work it out. He had inklings. He had clues. But along the way, he worked out what it was he was about. And worked out who he was and how he was to operate. And so one of the ways of understanding the story is 
This is a story of Jesus coming face to face with the fact that his message is not just for the children of Israel, which he thought it was. That actually, this message has much bigger implications. And the person who does it is a Canaanite woman who says, Ah, ah, but this isn't just for the children of Israel, it's for all of us. We want some of this as well. Now, when we put that into the bigger picture, that's part of the ongoing tension within the church, isn't it? Who's the gospel for? Is it just for Jews or is it for everyone? And when you become a Christian, do you have to be a Jew or can you stay a Gentile? When we, one of the ways that uh, commentators have kind of got around the picture of Jesus, the rude Jew, is they've said, well, he wasn't really that rude. He was just trying to test the woman to make sure she was worthy. And there's lots of commentators that say that. The only trouble with that is that Jesus doesn't do that to anyone else. When he meets someone who's in distress and who needs help, he meets them with profound compassion. He doesn't give them a little test to see if they're worthy first. He just meets them in their need. So I'd have kind of suggested on this occasion he thought he'd just do a little test first. The people I read said, not very likely. We need to find another way of understanding the story. Well, here are two ways. When we read our gospel story, we have to keep the context in mind. The first context is its place in the bigger story. All that stuff that the quiz was about. We should keep that in mind because that's at work. And the second context is what's happening in the gospel. So let's look at all that stuff for a start. One of the things that happened was that after the fall of Jerusalem and as the power of the balance of power shifted within that early group of churches that we call the early church and moved from the Jewish churches to the Gentile churches, the Jewish churches had to do a lot of soul searching. They had to do a lot of working out what it meant to be a follower of Christ. And a lot of people suggest that Matthew's community was a Jewish community. They were the ones really struggling. And so we can understand this story as part of Matthew and his community struggling with, wasn't Jesus just for us? Or was he for everyone? And if he's for everyone, what does that mean? Do you have to be a Jew? Or can you stay a Gentile? And in this story, the Canaanite woman stays a Canaanite woman. So it's in part maybe Jesus trying to come to grips with who he is, but it's also the wider church trying to come to grips with who they are. What does it mean to be a follower of Christ? Same kind of questions we have today. What does it mean to be a follower of Christ? Other context we have to keep in mind is its place in the Gospels. Now, we just stuck with what was in your pew sheet, which is what the lectionary said we should have read. We wouldn't have had all that stuff at the beginning about 
what goes into the mouth isn't what defiles, it's what comes out of the heart. We would have just had the story of the Syrophoenician woman. But a couple of the commentators I read said, it is wrong to read the story without placing it next to that first part. We keep using these gospel stories like they're pull-out, standalone stories. We keep using Bible verses like they're standalone Bible verses we can pluck out and quote and say, see, this is biblical. It's not biblical. It's biblical when we keep these things in their context and actually explore what they're saying as a whole. And so some of the people I read said, the story of the Syrophoenician woman is actually an acting out of what Jesus said just before it. So just to remind you what Jesus said right before it, and this is not a translation, this is a paraphrase from Eugene Peterson's The Message. Jesus replied to Peter, You too? Are you being willfully stupid? Don't you know that anything that is swallowed, swallowed works its way through the intestines and is finally defecated? But what comes out of the mouth gets its start in the heart. It's from the heart that we vomit up evil arguments. Murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, lies and cussing. That's what pollutes. Eating or not eating certain foods, washing or not washing your hands, that's neither here nor there. And having said that, Jesus goes into the region of Tyre and Sidon and he is confronted by a Canaanite woman. A woman who does not know the law of Moses who does not follow the law of Moses, who is, under every definition, defiled. She's a woman. She has a sick child. She's a Canaanite. She doesn't follow the law. Nothing going for her. She is so far down the pecking order you can't see her. And then she, the one who should be defiled is the one that has the conversation with Jesus. And it's an interesting conversation because we read it and we think, oh, well, dogs, do they get crumbs from the table? In our house they do. But lots of houses they don't. But actually, in, in that part of the world, as in the Solomons and Vanuatu and places like that, that is exactly where dogs get fed. They eat the crumbs from under their table. They don't get fed anywhere else. That's their food supply. People throw them the chicken bones and the... I was going to say the pork bones, but that would be not kosher. <laughs> all the bones, all the scraps, they get given to the dogs. So when she replies to him, he says, Should I give the food for the children of Israel to dogs? Her response is... Even the dogs get the crumbs. Out of her mouth, her, her defiled mouth, comes a statement of intense faith. Great trust in who Jesus is. And it changes him, and it changes how people understand what Jesus is about. She enacts what Jesus has just said. It's not her obedience to the law. It's not her doing the right things that makes her undefiled. It's her heart. 
and what comes out of her mouth. So, when we read the Gospels, when we read any of the books of the Bible, we have to keep in mind the context. The time they were written, who they were written for, why they were written, and we have to keep in mind what's happening around those stories, what's happening before, what's happening after, who Jesus is speaking to, who Paul is writing to, and why. So a number of different ways of understanding the same story. Which one speaks to you? And which one helps you understand who we are now as God's people? And how we are being invited to join in God's ongoing work today.